0: Jeremy and I have been preaching this series of sermons. Why do we believe that? We've been looking at different things that, that Christians believe that uh, the world may disagree with us about. And asking seriously, I mean, what do we say? Why do we believe the things that we believe? And so today, I want to talk about marriage. Marriage comes from God. That's something we believe as Christians. That's something the world believes really doesn't believe anymore, not very much. And, and why do we continue to believe that? Why do we hold on to that idea? Well, I'm going to start where we always start, on these questions. Why do we believe anything that we believe? As Christians, it better be because of the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing From the Word of God. First, all Christian faith comes from what the Word of God plants in our hearts. And so that always needs to be our starting place. Are we perfect interpreters of Scriptures? No, we are not. History shows us again and again and again just how fallible Christians are as they try to read God's Word. Does that mean we should just give it up? No, it does not. We are little children. We are being led by God's hand, and it is our task to try and grow up and to grow up in the Word of God, and that's what we attempt to do week after week, month after month, year after year, as we try to be God's people. So, why do we believe that marriage comes from God? There are all kinds of voices that say marriage doesn't come from God. Marriage comes from the government. The world says marriage is a government institution. It means whatever the government says it means. The Bible differs, however. The Bible says marriages are made by God and continue to be governed by Him. The passage that we just had read, that's really the issue that's going on. Now this whole section of Matthew out of which we're taking our primary text today with some subsidiary text to help us along, this this section of Matthew is a time in which Jesus is asked repeatedly for His opinion or His judgment on various issues. And it's not because the leaders of the Jews respected Jesus, it's quite the reverse. They think of Jesus as sort of a, a country preacher that got lucky. And they want to show the whole crowd just how ignorant he really is of the the legal matters of the law. And so they, they try to uh, test Jesus with this question, which was one over which the The best teachers of the law were divided. The Pharisees themselves actually couldn't come to an agreement on the question that they asked him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Now, don't get me wrong. The Pharisees agreed, oh, uh, of course it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife. It's just, what reason does he have to give? They didn't agree that it was lawful for a woman to divorce her husband. Of course not. But it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife, and they were just arguing. What kind of reasons do you give for divorcing if you divorce? And Jesus answers, Have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And He said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together Let no one separate. Let no human separate. That's Jesus' initial ruling on the question. They say, well, we all know we're supposed to be able to get divorces. That's fine. Nobody bothers with that. Uh, Every culture allows divorces. And he says, what did God set up to start with? What did God set up? Let's go back to the beginning. He refers to Genesis chapter 2. Adam is there in the garden, a special place God has created, given Adam the job of taking care of it, and he's not going to be able to take care of it unless he has somebody to help him, somebody like him, beside him. And so he brings Eve to Adam. And he says this that Jesus says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother. And be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then Jesus adds his own commentary. That last verse, verse 6, is Jesus' own commentary on the book of Genesis. He says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. How many marriages does God create? You're quite right, Eric. God created your marriage. God is the one who joins people together in marriage. And therefore, marriage is governed by God. Now, sometimes the government's going to do the right thing. Sometimes the government's going to do the wrong thing. That is sort of immaterial to who's really in charge. Sometimes seeking to do the will of God in our marriages, we're going to be going with the flow of the culture. Sometimes seeking to do the will of God in our marriages, we're going to be running contrary to the culture. That is beside the point. Who's in charge of marriage? It's not the government. It's God. God built us in such a way that we need this institution of marriage. Marriage is actually far broader than any revelation from God from the Bible. We find marriage everywhere because God encoded it into the way human beings are. Why do we get married? If you ask that question today in our culture, people will come up with all kinds of reasons. We'll talk about one of the most common ones here in a minute but why do we get married it's not because we love each other probably that's part of it that isn't why you get married you don't need marriage to love each other you don't need marriage to have relationship sexual relationship or any other relationship you don't need marriage for that why do you get married why does every culture get married the romans called the state of marriage matrimony, and they said that for a reason. I think they're on to something true. Are men and women the same? They are not. Because it's women who become maters, mothers. And every culture creates marriage. And we've got encoded it into us to do this. Every culture creates marriage Because when women get pregnant, they need the man to stay around. They need the man to be there to help them take care of those children. It doesn't mean that they can't do it alone. They often have to do it alone. But it is not what God intended. Nature tells you who the mother is. Societies design marriage over and over and over again in roughly the same pattern. It's amazing how uniform it is. Across cultures, over and over and over again, society's designed marriage. Nature tells you who the mother is. Society has to say, this man is the father. This man is the one who is responsible to take care of this woman while she's pregnant, to take care of her when she's taking care of the kids, or to help take care of those kids. I mean, that's just really the basis for why we have an institution of marriage as opposed to some other institution. That's really what it is. Now, are there forms of marriage that don't involve Yeah, sure there are. But that's the fundamental reason why societies come up with marriage. And it's God who instituted that. It's God who created that. And he created it, of course, between men and women. Now, I know that this summer... June 26th, there was a kind of a shock to the system for those of us who are Christians and are used to the Christian view of marriage, because the Supreme Court ruled same-sex marriage is constitutional, so the states that haven't already adopted it are free to do it without worry that it will violate some tenet of the, the Constitution. And public sentiment has swung more rapidly on this issue than on very many issues I can remember in recent time. More and More Christians who, who feel that same-sex unions are wrong or, and a violation of marriage and a misunderstanding of marriage are really in the minority. And we are swimming culturally upstream now to say those sorts of things. But I honestly don't think that same-sex marriage and the change of the definition of marriage that's resulting from it is the big issue facing our culture on marriage. And I, I, I think that for a couple of reasons. For one, this issue of same-sex marriage, it was it's not a huge part of the gay rights agenda. It's actually very difficult to document much about it before the 1990s. And prior to that, those advocating for gay rights were not really advocating much for gay marriage. Their attitude towards marriage was very similar to the general liberal culture attitude towards marriage. Marriage in general was held in contempt. It was viewed as an outmoded institution that we have moved past. That the society, the government, no one has should have any say in who you love, why you love them, and how long you love them, and when you can separate from them when you're tired of them. That's the general attitude that our society has adopted, at least the liberal branch of our society has adopted. And I actually think that now that same-sex marriage has been made constitutional, it will cease to be a place where politicians can get votes and where fundraisers can raise money and, and they'll stop talking about it and the news media will stop talking about it and we'll move on. But that's not the big challenge to marriage. The big challenge to marriage is and was and will be where Jesus was talking about. The real change to the definition of marriage in our culture happened not on June 26th of the summer. It happened as we shifted what we think about marriage and divorce. I hate to be a bearer of bad news, but that's what I believe, because I believe both the culture and then Christians following along have shifted what we believe about divorce. And it's a painful topic. It affects every one of us. There's It would be rare to find a family in any of the pews here who's not been touched directly or indirectly by divorce. But divorce is is how we have moved to the place where we are and the view we have of marriage. And what I want to say this morning is this. We Christians do not depend on the government to confirm our view of marriage. And we had better not follow the lead of the government when it defines what marriage is and isn't. Faith comes from hearing the Word of God. And again and again, even if we find that our lives do not match very well with what the Bible teaches, again and again we have to call ourselves back to The scriptures. Now I'm not saying this isn't complicated. And I'm not saying I have the answers. I don't. I'm just saying again and again we have to try to live the way that God has asked us to live in this area as in every other. Jesus says, I know divorce is real. I'm just saying what God created us for is not divorce. It's not that. The big struggle... Brothers and sisters in Christ, the big struggle for us is not to get the government to write a new law defining marriage. Now don't get me wrong, it would be nice if the government makes righteous laws. And you have certain rights as a U.S. citizen, I actually think you should vote for righteous laws when you get a chance to. I think you should speak out for righteous laws when you have a chance to. Just don't get all bent out of shape if the government does crazy stuff. Because they're going to do crazy stuff. Their motives are not our motives. What drives them is not what drives Christians. And you can't expect the government to be very close to righteousness on this topic. Our challenge is not to get the government in line with our doctrine. Our challenge is to get ourselves in line with our doctrine. Our challenge is as a church to do as lovingly uh, and as powerfully a job as we can to encourage and strengthen marriages in our fellowship, to make godly marriages that can serve to raise godly children and can serve to shine a light into our culture today. And that's what we have to, have to, have to dedicate ourselves to. The world says marriage is about making ourselves happy. We can make, break, remake marriages in our pursuit of happiness. What else could marriage possibly be about except your happiness? You love somebody you want the world to know, get married. Everybody says, yay, gives you a cake. Uh, You know, it gets harder. After a few years, you're not happy anymore. You have a right to be happy. You have a right to be happy. Break the marriage up. Go someplace else. Do something different. I want to start with that phrase, you have a right to be happy. C.S. Lewis said, you have no right to be happy. You don't have any more right to be happy than you have a right to be six foot two. You know, I mean, happiness is not even a goal you can pursue. I know it's in our uh, uh, Declaration of Independence or Constitution. Which is it? I can't remember. Sorry. Whatever it is. I know we think it's uh, something that we, and I don't want the government interfering with my pursuit of it, but you can't pursue the happiness. You pursue righteousness. Happiness sometimes happens, but sometimes not. Kind of depends on how messed up the world is and how messed up the people right around you are, whether or not you end up being happy. The Bible says marriage is about more than happiness. It teaches us to be faithful the way God is faithful. That's what Jesus says. I mean the Pharisees who thought that they were going to show how ignorant Jesus was kind of get slapped in the face because Jesus is quoting, you know, really powerful precedent. Like, this is how God created human beings. And they said, but, 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 why did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce a woman? And he said to them, it was because you were so hard-hearted That Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. He says this is not playing. This is serious. This is something that God takes very seriously. God created marriage. God governs marriage. God establishes marriage. And he cares what you do with your marriages. He cares. They said, Now that that doctrine about why did Moses allow us to get a divorce? Actually, if you look at the at the scripture they're referring to, the only one it could possibly be is Deuteronomy twenty four, the first four verses. And if you look and read Deuteronomy twenty four carefully, you'll realize it doesn't even give permission. It basically just says, If you get a divorce, here's some stuff you shouldn't do. It's a regulation. Of divorce, which is why Jesus is really not impressed with their precedent. Um, Alphonse Gabriel Capone. you guys know who I 'm talking about? Chicago bootlegger, ran the North Side gang, murdered a lot of people. What did they arrest him for finally, and convict him for? Tax evasion. Allegedly, I I couldn't find this in a documented source, but allegedly he said, how can they make me pay legal taxes on illegal money? (laughs) Which is a pretty good question. I mean, the enterprise where he made his money was against the law. Was the IRS coming in and saying, yeah, but you still got to pay taxes, where they suddenly say, yeah, because it's really legal what you're... No. But they knew he was doing it, and so they regulated it. Right? Right? And that's the logic that Jesus actually uses here. He says, Moses didn't give you the perfect law. He gave you the best law that God thought you could follow, given how bad you were. The law is a schoolmaster. It was given to you to try and help you develop. You were pretty rotten people when I took you out of Egypt. You're still pretty rotten people, and the law is designed to help you develop. And so that whole discussion of divorce was not to give you permission. It was to keep you from doing even worse things with it. And he said, but that's not the way God designed it. God has this other intention for it that He revealed to us in Genesis chapter 2, and He wants you to live by that. And I say, a person who divorces like this commits adultery. That's a strong teaching. That is a strong teaching. Jesus may be thinking back to passages like Malachi 2. Malachi is listing some of the ways in which Israel is sort of living out in their culture rebellion against God. He says, The second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer regards your sacrifices and accepts it with favor from your hand. And you say, Why doesn't he? Because the Lord was witness between you and your wife and the wife of your youth, when you got married, God was there. God was creating that union. God is the witness. I know you had witnesses who signed the piece of paper, but God was the big witness, and He is bearing witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. That's... The kind of divorce that that culture was used to is where the woman had no freedom, the man had all the freedom to divorce. And he says that is that is to smear yourselves with violence, men, when you do that. Now we have a different set of problems, a different form of divorce in our culture, but the basic content remains the same. God says, I want you to be faithful I am calling you to be faithful. Why is that? Because God is faithful. Well, I'll be faithful if she'll be faithful. I'll be faithful if He'll be nice. But is that the way God treats you? Is that the way God is faithful to you? Is God only as faithful to you as you are nice to Him? No. No. And one of the kind of mysteries of marriage is that marriage is meant to begin to teach us what it's like to be faithful like God is faithful. Faithful even when we're married to somebody who's not being very nice to us. Faithful even when we want to just pinch their punkin' little heads off. Sorry, honey, it's very rarely, very rarely. But occasionally... Well, that's just marriage. And if if you didn't have the promise of faithfulness, you might just go your separate way. I get really mad sometimes. She gets mad for better reasons than I do. But I don't know that we would stay together if we hadn't promised to be faithful. And it is that faithfulness that binds us to something bigger than ourselves. I really think that that's what Paul is thinking about in Ephesians chapter 5. I think he's mind, not just Malachi, but... But all the different... Hosea, the first three chapters of Hosea, Ezekiel that talks about God's marriage, Jeremiah that talks about the marriage covenant between God and His people. And he's mined all of that and seen it through the lens of Christ and says, don't you get it that God, in Jesus Christ, is marrying His people. The church universal, the people that He has called out of all the nations now, not just Israel, all the nations. He's called them to... They are His bride. And when we, as husband and wife, live together, we are modeling something about God's relationship to us as His people. What God has planned. And that's why marriage matters. It matters that we learn faithfulness. It matters that we show our children what faithfulness looks like. The world says, You are a failure if you're alone, doesn't it? Doesn't it say that? You're a failure if you're alone. The Bible says your success and your glory come from taking part in the kingdom of God. It's interesting. Jesus gives this teaching in Matthew 19. He says, You know, I'm just saying, God made man and woman. He said, Stick together. And I'm telling you, what God puts together, you should not pull apart. And they say, are you sure? Because we got this weird passage over. And he says, yeah, I'm sure. Divorce is adultery. And his own disciples come back to him and say, well, why would we ever get married if it's really like that, Jesus? And Jesus said, I never said you had to get married. He actually says this is a message. Now, it's not a message for everybody. He says this is a saying only for those to whom it's given. This is... Paul calls this a gift, the gift of celibacy. But he says, there are some people who are eunuchs. Sometimes they're made eunuchs, but sometimes they're they're eunuchs because of the kingdom of God. They deny themselves sex because of the kingdom of God. Our culture cannot wrap its head around anybody making that choice. And the reason is really simple. If I'm making a movie and I want to show somebody for you to admire... What do I show you? If I'm making a TV show and I want to show somebody that you want to kind of, you know, root for and get on board with, I'm going to show you somebody that's got money or got power or is a sexual success. Right? Usually I'm going to show you all three. Because that's how you know who to root for now in our culture. And if I want to show you somebody that's a failure... I take away money from them, or I take away power from them. People boss them around instead of them being able to boss people around. Or I take away sexual success. They're alone. And that's how you know they're idiots. Is because they're alone. In our culture, being a success just means having money, sex, and Power. That's what will make your life meaningful. Money, sex, and power. That's what will save your life. Money, sex, and powers. Behold your gods, O Israel. Money, sex, and power. And you and I, in our little congregations, gather together week after week, and we take the supper of Jesus Christ. Who had no money, who had no power, and who had no sex. And we say, when we eat this bread and we drink this cup, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is King. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is the future of the world people will come back at us and say you christians you've got to keep up with the times maybe what the bible wrote was meaningful two thousand years ago but you you've got to move with the times and we say the times are heading to jesus christ and his kingdom we are with the times this is where the world is going we want to be part of the kingdom and yes you can take away power from us and yes You can take away money from us. And yes, you can even take away sex from us, I suppose. But we will be faithful to Jesus Christ our Lord. If you want to respond to the invitation of Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, who has died so that you can live, if you want to receive Him in baptism or if you need prayers, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.